we don't know. And we don't know. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. We don't know. But here's the way I, I like to think about it. The risk of it. What if it's really bad? Why take the risk? Uh, yeah, it's expensive. But I, but I, here's my problem is we're not addressing that problem and the risk around it in a rational manner. And that's my dislike for, for, for ESG is, is, you know, let's solve this problem, but let's do it in a rational manner that actually gets results. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. A new world order is emerging, and in our Global Macro series, I, along with my co-host, Jim Kassang, want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guest today is one of the most sought-out people when it comes to understanding the global natural resource shift we're witnessing right now. So please enjoy our conversation with the Head of Commodity Research at Goldman Sachs, Jeff Curry. Jeff, welcome and thank you so much for joining Jim and I today for what I'm sure will be an incredibly eye-opening and insightful conversation on all things commodities. How are you doing? How are things so far in the new year? Oh, I'm doing well. Happy New Year to both of you. And um, no, I'm excited about commodities in 2023. So I'm looking forward to this year. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Jeff, since this is your first time on our podcast, I know you've been on many other podcasts, maybe to provide a little bit of context to our conversation, do you mind sharing just a few highlights in terms of your background and actually possibly what was the biggest impact on you that led you to do what you do today and focus on the commodity space. Well, uh, you know, I, I am the head of commodities research at Goldman, and before that, I was an academic economist, and I was at the University of Chicago. And to answer your question, um, how I got into you know the space was I came out of school. In 1990, in the middle of Gulf War One, oil prices were at $40 a barrel. Nothing else in this world was hiring but oil companies. And so I got a lot of information um, as a uh, in my first job before completing my PhD on the oil market. And 
when I went back and finished the doctorate, my dissertation was on the geographic extent of the oil market, looking at, you know, how far does one oil market connect to the other one? And in the early 1990s, oil was the largest, most global fungible market. And so it had, you know, much more interconnection. But even today, you know, with all the technology, things like mountain ranges and things like that still create fragmented markets. So that's how I got into it. And I'm still at it, uh, you know, little over 30 years later. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's fantastic. Now, I followed your work uh, for, for a while. And I have to say, every time I hear you speak, I walk away having learned something new or I've been inspired to think about a topic in a different way. And I think that many people around the world who may not have thought too much about how commodities and energies in particular impacts pretty much everything we take for granted have found a new appreciation of this in the last 12 months. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, so let me just start out by throwing out a topic that I know you spend a lot of time thinking about and then we'll just take it from there. And I think perhaps we can start out by focusing on what is different about what became clear to everyone in 2022, namely the interplay between commodities and inflation and how the current inflationary period is different from previous periods such as 2008 and maybe even also the 1970s. Well, I think first and foremost, what characterizes this period versus any other is the focus on decarbonization. Um, and as a result, uh, we're seeing it very difficult for the sector to be able to create the supply response it typically would under these types of pricing conditions. Um, you know, you look at how undervalued many of these different publicly traded companies are. They currently have the economic incentives to do share buybacks with their cash flow as opposed to drilling for, for, for new oil. I don't want to get in the debate whether that's right or wrong or whatever that might be, but I think that that distinction is really important here. And it's not just happening in the, in the oil sector. It's happening in all of commodities. Because let's remember the old economy creates 80% of the world's emissions. Um, and as a result, it's the dirty sector. The new economy is clean. So if you're an investor just trying to stay away from you know, the high, entire debate around decarbonization, just ignore the old economy and you'll be safe. And unfortunately, that's kind of the approach that many investors have taken. And as a result, the ability to track capital into the space has been severely constrained. And we saw evidence of that last year. And I think some of the listeners are like going, hey, wait, aren't oil stocks up 60% over the course of the last year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I want you to think about what that trajectory looks like between oil stocks and oil equities going back to 2017. You know, it just, it's a dead cat bounce in terms of thinking about correcting the decoupling that has occurred between oil equities and the oil price. And it's not just in the oil um, equities, it's in the metals and miners, um, agriculture producers, all of them have a significant disconnect between the capital that they've been attracting 
and where the underlying commodity prices are. Um, so if you're the distinguishing, to answer your question, the distinguishing difference really boils down to the ability to get a supply response. And one last point on that is, you know, when we think about, you well, know, approaching decarbonization. You know, we've been big ad- advocates of using a carbon price or a carbon tax because it it, it doesn't create these distortions in investment. Um, you know, it's a flow through. Um, and these distortions in investments are creating much higher prices than what a carbon tax in itself would create. But more importantly, these distortions are essentially a carbon tax where the tax revenues are not collected by the governments in U.S., Europe, and you know the different energy consumers around the world. So, um, you know, these are questions that are going to need to be addressed by policymakers on a forward-going basis. But I think you know the, the key point here, and I'm belaboring the point. The big difference is the ability for the sectors to respond to higher prices. Now. That, that's very, very interesting, Jeff. But there was one other thing that I also wanted to uh, ask you about because I've heard you talk about this and this was something that when I heard it, I said, yeah, of course, that's so logical, but I don't hear many people talk about it. And that is also the difference in policymakers and how they have responded to these crises, these periods, and how that's changing. And also, I've heard you talk about which part of society actually creates inflation? And when people understand that, you know, it, it just as not many people who who explain it as well as you do. So I'm hoping I can get you to 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 expand a little bit more uh, in those two directions. Okay, yeah, ab- absolutely. And let, let's start with, yeah, the, I'm going to make a statement here that may be, you know, kind of shocking is that ultimately, Commodity bull markets in inflation are created by low-income groups, not the high-income groups, but the low-income groups. And there's no exception to this observation. And I think a lot of people find it kind of, yeah, they find it uh, disturbing because there's a belief that, hey, those that are in the, you know, the low-income groups are the most vulnerable for inflation. No, the actual truth is they create it. And now let's go over why that is true. When we think about commodities in physical markets, they're what we call volumetric markets. They're driven by the quantity consumed. To be bullish in an oil market or a copper market, it's really easy. You look at the volume consumed versus the volume supply. If demand is bigger than supply, you're bullish. There's no discount factors, no interest rates, just nothing. Either you're long or short the stuff. When we think about financial markets and even GDP, they're dollar markets. How do you quote a oil, you know, an equity market? Billions of dollars of market cap. How do you quote an economy? Trillions of dollars of output. The concept of volume is not defined. Um, and but things like interest rates, discount factors, all of that are very important in terms of creating a valuation. Now, when we just think about the simple flow or economics of commodity markets, it's just volume consumed. And in financial markets, just simply dollars invested. And now I'm going to make a, you know, an observation. When we think about high-income groups around the world, what do they control? They control dollars. 
Are there very many high-income people in the world? Absolutely not. So they cannot control volume. In contrast, the low-income groups control volume. So let's ask the following question. Can high-income groups create financial inflation? Absolutely, yes. One guy can go out and, you know, if, you know, take an Elon Musk. Well, he lost $200 billion this last year. Let's go back a while ago. You know, he could have uh, created a, you know, inflation across any of these financial markets. Um, but can he create inflation in a commodity market? No, it's numerically impossible. Um, there's not enough of high-income people that could create physical good inflation. You know, take corn. Um, you know, a high-income guy consumes about the same, yeah, about the same amount of, of corn as the low-income guy. And some of the listeners are like, oh, hey, what about the high-income guy that has the private jet? Yeah, there's those outliers way out there. But on average, the high-income guy he consumes a little bit more oil, but not substantially much more. Um, and I think that that point there says the only possible way high-income groups could create commodity inflation or physical good inflation, they'd have to hoard it. Now, is hoarding all the world's, world's corn, oil even possible? Absolutely not. There's only one commodity the world's um, high income could hoard, and that's gold. You think about it, you can store you know, all of Fort Knox gold in a very, very small um, location. I'd like to point this out. When you take the gold ETF, you know, it, you know, it's somewhere around $150 billion of gold in it right now. You could put all that gold in your office. It may break the floor because it weighs so much, but you could put it in your office. Now, let's take like the, you know, the ETF on oil. At its peak, it was somewhere around, um, you know, 200. It's probably about, you know, 200 million barrels. Um, and 200 million barrels, call it, you know, some somewhere around, you know, let's call it $12, 15000000000 billion. So think about this. Now, if those listeners think about 200 million barrels, well, how many VLCCs is that? That is it's essentially 200 VLCCs. Now, vision in your head what a v VLCC is. Those big, enormous ships. Now, I live here in London. Can you imagine parking 200 VLCCs out on the Thames? You can't do it you're not going to be able to store all that oil. And that's at a critical point here. So it is numerically impossible for high-income groups to ever create physical good inflation. So the conclusion is only the low-income groups can create that inflation. Now, let's go to the first part of your question, which was, hey, the you have policy. And so policy is actually making that supply problem I was telling you about before worse but then accentuating the low income growth. So let's take like here in Europe, they use a, a um, windfall profit tax and then they take the, the returns from the windfall profit tax and give it to lower income groups. So what are they doing? They're actually making the supply problem worse and accentuating the demand issues. So anyway, I think, th so yeah, th I think it's a critical point here is that when we look at, you know, the history of commodity bull markets, they're invariably driven by low-income groups. What was the 2000 China story driven by? 400 million low-income rural Chinese. 
What was the 1970s commodity story driven by? The war on poverty. And so I think that's the point that you're after. And, and, and it's really apparent in the current environment. And as we look forward, that interplay between decarbonization and um, income inequality is only become more critical and more critical in the commodity space. Jeff, I think you said a few words that uh, Jim likes to talk about. So, Jim, why don't you join uh, join the conversation here? <laughs> yeah, this is this is a hundred percent what I I agree with you, hundred percent, Jeff. Uh, you know, uh, I've been talking about for years uh, the the realities of monetary policy is essentially supply side economics, and it's been sending money to what I call Planet Palo Alto, right? It's been sending money to another planet where they uh, where the money is sequestered, right? Uh, not entering the economy, velocity of zero, if you want to use that term. And instead, they've been sending us uh, really efficient goods back, uh, you know, Teslas and Ubers and Amazons, right? Which, uh, ironically, all that money created is creating deflation secularly and has been. Uh, so, Monetary policy is essentially a form of supply-side economics, and uh, what we're getting in response to the inequality that we've seen for 40 years is uh, a fiscal response, which has a velocity of one. So I'm 100% on the same page. Uh, that populism and that rebalancing of inequality ultimately drives inflation, and that's why we haven't seen it for 40 years, but now that we're seeing that fiscal response, we are seeing that. So I agree with you 100%. Uh, um, I also agree with you on the supply-side uh, dynamics of, of commodities, right? Because of the underinvestment, because of the ESG, et cetera. My question to you is uh, cyclically, not secularly, but cyclically, uh, the demand side, right? That's the big question right now. If we look at 2023, one year is a short, uh, relatively short period uh, under a secular uh, trend. So, um, you know, you guys recently, I think, called for, uh, you know, 40% plus uh, outperformance of, of energy, of oil this year. Um, how uh, how do you see the demand side in this year, not just secularly with the populist thrust we're talking about, but really given the Fed's uh, desire to bring down uh, the economy and the, and the potential res uh, impending recession? Love to hear your thoughts. Well, I, I, I guess the single most important question for commodities in 2023, um, you know, the biggest drag coming from, you know, from in commodities in the second half of 2022 was really coming from the demand side, particularly China. And I like to point out, you know, China is the largest commodity consumer in the world, the largest oil importer in the world, and it's the second largest economy. And it's been shut down. You know, there's a lot of concern around, you know, you know, hard landing. I go, well, what are you waiting for? You got it. You got, um, you know, Europe went through an energy-induced recession in the latter part of 2022, or a slowdown, whatever you want to call it, and China was humbled to its knees through rolling lockdowns due to COVID. Every indicator you look out tells you that you're inflecting right now. Um, you look at China, uh, you know, whether if it's mobility, um, subway ridership, um, holiday bookings. I want to point the holiday bookings are quite low, but they're all beginning to sequentially turn up right now. And I, you know, we look at China, it's abandoned the zero COVID policy. And one of the most compelling arguments I've heard about China is, is at this point right now, you know, the number of people who've had or have COVID is quite high, which means that, you know, in three weeks time, a lot of these people are going to be testing 
uh, um, negative and be wanting to take a holiday as you go into the golden week. And a lot of these people haven't taken a holiday in three years' time. And, uh, you know, if, if you were the government and the policymakers in China, you can go a long ways of recovering from those policy mistakes last year with everybody getting a refreshing two-week holiday. So I'm a big believer in, in you know, big golden week this year, um, which is just reinforce, um, you know, the recovery. And in and, and oil demand, you're talking, you know, 1.2, potentially even 1.5 million barrels per day of sequential demand, you know, over the next potentially six months, particularly if you get an international um, reopening with flights going back into the sector. And I haven't even addressed, you know, all the stimulus focused on the property market. Um, at this point right now, whether you know, if you look at the property market and their and their hesitancy there in late twenty one and twenty two, it was a focus on deleveraging. Now the focus is against back on growth. And you think about, you know, with, with the COVID policy or, you know, the, the posturing China did with Russia, they're turning back to the West. They're focused on growth. And if they're focused on growth, commodities are going to be the best play in which you take advantage of that. Um, and then if we turn to Europe. You know, gas prices are over. The winter weather, it's over with. There wasn't a winter crisis here. Our view going in this winter is nobody gets hit by a train they see coming. Um, they made the adjustments. The weather was cooperative. Um, the story of the inflation front in the energy crisis is at least over, um, you know, for at least the near term or foreseeable future. I'm not going to say in no way is the longer term secular problem over with in, in Europe, but at least near term, they've got a reprieve. And you can see it in the PMIs. They're rebounding. Indian PMIs rebounding. So that the only negative fly in the ointment is what happens in, in the U.S. Uh, and there you just digested, you know, what, 425 basis points of rate hikes. Um, and, and 325 of that was in the um, – was mainly in the second half of last year. Um, and as the market begins to become more comfortable with terminal rates, I, I can't see why you don't start to create the potential for upside. One last point, I know I'm belaboring your, your, your question, Jim, here, is the, you know, when we look at the destocking, the sector has priced itself for a recession. Everybody, it's like reception obsession, yet there's very little evidence of it out there, um, outside of some place like Europe or the COVID shutdowns in China. But I think the key concern I would have in all of this is the market has priced in a recession, physical suppliers, inventories, all of that is completely aimed like it's going to have a recession in 2023. What happens if you don't get one? And the evidence so far as we enter 2023 doesn't really suggest you're going to see one on a global basis. And our economists, um, you know, they take the view and it's a little bit, you know, viewed as being, you know, out of consensus right now. They're not in that camp of a recession. Yeah. I, um, I'm kind of you're kind of preaching to the choir. I definitely am drinking the Kool Aid. I agree with you on on all those fronts. Um, you know, particularly I would uh, add. You know, if we do get a recession, uh, given the populist kind of response that we're seeing, you might actually get more fiscal, which could actually exacerbate things. Um, so, from a structural macro perspective, uh, you know, a, a supply and demand perspective, I agree. To be polemical a bit, and also because I this is what I worry about um, uh, on that side in the short term is. Uh, you know, you mentioned nobody gets hit by a train they see coming, right? Um, 
you're not the only one talking about this, right? A lot of people positioning is definitely a little heavy commodities right now. Um, and that can always be a short-term headwind, right? Even if you're in a secular move. In particular, uh, I'm on the vol side of things. I think there's this interesting dynamic that I'd like to highlight where, um, you know, vol itself uh, on the index level has compressed volatility this year on the equity index side. And with the liquidation and the tech names, that's meant um, structurally that there's had to be demand for somewhere else in the market, which has really flown into the commodity space. Um, it's kind of the inner workings of, of the, uh, the market machine. The more and more that vol becomes unpinned in the index level and correlations go to one, if we do see a second leg down, I, I'm afraid uh, structurally that commodities might actually be harder hit than people expect because that's where people are hiding, if you will. Um, do you have any thoughts on market? I know you're broadly thinking supply and demand, more market microstructure, more economics, but uh, short-term positioning, uh, what that might mean for the commodity space in the short term. Yeah, I find it surprising you say people are hiding in there. Um, the space is unloved. Um, I mean, we look at the index flows. You know, we had $60 billion of outflows last year. When you look at the hedge funds that are devoted, I mean, you go back to the 2000s, there was like $80 billion. You're lucky if you can come up with 12 right now, and I can list them all on my fingers and my hands because that's it. And then when you, by the way, there is money in the space, but it's in the ETF retail side. Um, but it still pales in comparison to what we saw um, during the 2000s. So I, I don't agree with you. Even look at the equities. They're undervalued. The free cash flow yields are far too high on, on the equities, which means people still don't believe in, in the story. So when you look at you know the, the, the market cap of energy in the S&P, it's running somewhere around 5 to 5.3%. Uh, of market cap, but on a revenue basis, it's closer to nine or ten, which tells you that again, people are underinvested in the you know energy and commodity equities. The same thing can be said about metals and mining. Um, I know in the index space, um, you know it's 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 a total sleeper. Um, you know, people do not have we. Don't, I mean, I just do not see the flows like we would have seen in any other super cycle. Now, do I think this is abnormal for where we are in the cycle? The answer is no. Um, and I think, you know, you look at the 2000s, nobody bought into this story until it was 05, three years after it happened. And when I talk to asset allocators, they tell me that's relatively normal. And, and I go, you know, to, you know, you look at it, you know, the reason why people are not hiding in this space, they may be on a vol basis, but they're definitely not on a flat price basis, is the history of the space is the losses were nothing short than epic, um, you look at the EMP companies in this sector over the last decade, they destroyed 54 cents on every dollar they were given. So no wonder nobody wants to give them any money. Commodities generated a 60% loss over that same time period. So again, no wonder why nobody wanted to give any money to this space. Nobody believes in it. You know, in terms of getting people to, they're going to want to see a three-year track record. 2021 posted 42% returns. 2022 posted 26% returns. They're probably going to need to see another big number in 2024 before they begin to think about it. I think we'll likely see some of that rotation begin to occur, but it's going to take probably another 18 months. And I've lived through 
two of these big transitions, you know, I, I'm a firm believer the money, you know, went to, to, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, and we call that the revenge of the old economy. And we, we created that concept back in February of 2002, when the dot com boom crashed, you know, back then, is that, you know, you go, it was 02 through 05, that that transition before people really bought into it. And, and I'd lived through the transition in 13, 14, 15, and 16. And you had to send the memo out over and over and over. And, and of ultimately, the reality is the asset managers, I watched it in 13, 14, and 15. You know, they send the memo out. Guess what? The China story is over by tech. China story is over by tech. And ultimately, you ended up having to replace the CEOs of the companies to get them to quit spending. You had to replace the asset managers to get them to quit investing in the space. And then finally, they bought into the tech story. Well, newsflash memo, it's time to move back into the commodity space. But I, I don't think it's going to take another 18 plus months. I'd be surprised if it happens next year. So if anything, you know, I, I kind of find it surprising you say it's been a place people have been hiding. Gold, maybe yes, but even then. It's not as much as you'd expect. I want to stay maybe with energy for a little bit here and just sort of listening to other people, other guests we've had on the show. I'm thinking here about people, and I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Zion, the geopolitical strategist, and some of the things that he's uh, been talking about. And one of the things I recently picked up from him was this risk of uh, and and correct me if I'm wrong here because you're the expert, but you know when Russian oil flow starts to slow, water can build up in the pipes, and and if you have a really deep freeze, they can actually blow the pipe because water expands, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How how do you see the the risk of some real disruption coming from the the changes in both kind of infrastructure, but obviously the whole trading situation with Russia at the moment? Well, do you see? What do you see from that? Yeah, I, with with oil, um, you know, we're off maybe two hundred thousand barrels a day, potentially three hundred since the um, December fifth implementation of the of the price cap, um, and that's due to frictions. You know, inability to find refineries that can take it, inability for ships to go into certain ports because you know oil needs the big deep water, um, you know, ports and so forth. But it's not a catastrophic event in any shape or form. They're going to keep the oil likely flowing. The real problem comes with the products in February. Um, and by the way, I agree with everything on, on the freeze-offs and all, all the other issue, which is why they're going to do everything in their power to keep um, those productions level there. I mean, it's old technology where they use lots of water in, in the production to generate pressure. So they have a, a whole host of reasons why they, they can't. The problem is on the product side. There, you don't have, it's not as fungible as oil. Um, you know, the gasoline has to be in a different ship than, let's say, their fuel oil or the, re, the, the distillate and so on down the line, which creates a lot of problems with creating the logistics to be able to redirect those products. Um, and that's when we think you're going to get the bigger problem start to develop is in February. And we think you could lose, you know, potentially another 600,000 barrels per day um, due to um, the inability to ship the product. So, yeah, I, I agree with those, those issues, creating restrictions. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't see a problem. And by the way, until this week, the eastern port 
you know, the Espo and Cosimo um, ports out of Russia saw big declines. In fact, I would have been a much more aggressive with this question before today when I saw the data of the rebound. And I would almost tend to think, now you're China. What do you do in this environment? The West is not taking the Russian oil. You're in the driver's seat. And I would tend to think if anybody who's going to do anything here, it's going to be the Chinese. They're going to, for the reasons you just cited, they're going to force the Russians into a corner. I would if I were the Chinese. Sure, sure. Um, and, and just staying again with oil, and now we have Russia, we have China, but there's obviously one other big player, that's OPEC. <laughs> Where are they sitting in all of this? I did hear them the state after one of their meetings recently saying, well, you know, energy security comes with a price, uh, hinting very directly at the US, of course. But but how do you see their newfound power? I guess they're more maybe more powerful than they have been for a while, uh, given what's happened. I mean, the only two producers in the world on a country level that have reinvestment rates at the same level or higher than what they were in 2019 is Saudi Arabia and UAE. And that's where all your growth, that's your engine of growth. And in this new decarbonization world we're living in, you don't want to make long-term investments in things like deep water offshore platforms off the coast of Nigeria. That game's over with, and there's no capital going into those parts of the world. As a result, there's only three engines of growth going forward, all the fast cycle production, and that would be the United States shale, which is fast cycle, um, the Middle East production, which is all fast cycle, and Russia. You just lost one engine of growth in, in Russia, and now with the U.S., it's constrained with the inability to attract capital. That just leaves you with the Middle East as being your engine of growth. And so when you look at if you can think about market power as being a function of the supply elasticity of other producers around the world, if they're all essentially vertical supply curves, then the market power of you know core OPEC, which is the Gulf countries, has never been higher because their problem before wasn't non-OPEC; it was non-core OPEC. It was like the the West African countries or Venezuela or somebody like that cheating on them. That doesn't exist anymore. So you can argue, you know, going back since 1960, the inception of OPEC, the market power has never been higher. Um, which will put them in a in a very strong bargaining position. Um, you know, I'd say the Middle East more broadly is in a very strong position right now. Yeah. Jim, before you jump in, Jim, I have just one final question because I really don't know the answer to this. And that is, what about the strategic oil reserves? Have they stopped selling out of that or or is that still going on, Jeff? No, it ends at you know in the in you know December, and as we go into the new year, you're going to be losing that supply. So here's why I'm so bullish as you go into it: you're losing upwards to a million barrels per day of SPR. You're gaining over a million barrels per day of of Chinese demand, and you're losing up to five six hundred thousand barrels per day of Russian supply. That's a huge shift in balances, which really creates the upside. And I don't think they're going to use the SPR in 2023 because they realize how well it worked going into this election in 2022. They'd probably wait to use it again in 2024. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, on the Saudi Arabia note, um, I, I have kind of two two points. One, um, in June of this year, President Macron was kind of overheard on a hot mic. You probably know about this uh, talking uh, to Biden about Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed of the UAE claiming that neither the UAE or Saudi Arabia could 
produce more to help, uh, you know, reduce prices going into uh, New Year. <clears throat> and that's kind of that got less attention than you would think. Uh, there's a lot of speculation out there that, that the Gore oil field is actually uh, reaching, you know, is tapped out. Right. Um, so despite all the money being thrown into more production, they're getting less and less out of it in Saudi Arabia. So, hey, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, if there's any research or anything that you've looked at there. And then secondly, um, volatility. I'm a, I'm a volatility trader. We, we run several vol funds here. Um, the vol in the oil space, I think, is a very interesting dynamic. My work broadly says that in uh, you know you had a Fed put, which has controlled treasury vol and uh, dollar vol for some time. But uh, during times of inflation, you actually get uh, an, a commodity put from major producers like OPEC, uh, which is what we saw uh, in the 70s as well. And they actually support price, um, but interestingly, suppress volatility. Um, you've seen volatility go up significantly in the short term in oil and, and implied volatilities rise. Um, and broadly, um, our work says that that's actually the one commodity, one asset that that's kind of going the wrong way on. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on those two things. Uh, I think you know. F first, with with you know uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia's transparency, um, going back five ten years ago, pre the IPO, um, yeah, you could be speculating what you think um, you know Saudi Arabia can or cannot do. Remember, it's a publicly traded company with very sophisticated investors on a global basis. Um, if they say they're going to hit a target, they can't. They cannot. Um, you know, missed their target. So I, I find what they say about their capacity right now to be more credible than it ever has been in, you know, the, the existence just because they need to attract capital. They want to attract capital. And similarly, you take the UAE, you, you know, they may not do the IPO route, but they're taking a lot of the these subsidiary companies, you know, IPOing them and, you know, trading them. Um, their credibility to global investors is incredibly high right now. So I think those arguments about, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago about, you know, we, I think Saudi's capacity is this or UAE's capacity is this and they're not there. Um, now, if, if they say something and they don't hit it, they have serious financial consequences Therefore, I would argue that what they say, and they'll do, and you watch what OPEC has done recently, they have done exactly what they have said. They've not deviated once because they know that credibility is so critical right now. So I'm, I'm not a buyer into, you know, uh, and by the way, I was a big believer in those stories back in the 2000s. Um, and by the way, they're not claiming they have massive capacity right now today either. So, um, you know, let's put that and put it in perspective. Um, but going to the point about, you know, the, the, the put in, in commodities is, you know, when we look at, you know, their ability to, to manage the market, you know, again, you had much high, you know, more elastic supply curves back into the 70s. You know, the U.S. could respond, it would respond, you know, other producers around the world, which would take that volatility out. So, yeah, they could provide a put in, 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 in the current context. But, you know, is it going to do much when you have such inelasticity of supply elsewhere in the markets? You know, and, and then also the other factor, you know, bringing it into, you know, monetary policy, you know, when we look at the, you know, what drives the, the oil market, one of the biggest drivers in the decline in prices 
in the second half of 2022 was a stronger dollar and higher rates. Um, you know, here's the way I like to think about it. What's the definition of inflation? Too much money chasing too few goods. Well, the too few goods condition still holds in oil. What changed was there's far less money. And you think about someplace like Japan before this recent BOJ action. Uh, you know, you looked at the yen, it went from 100 to 150. That means there's 50% fewer dollars to chase oil than what there would have been a year ago. Well, before the recent action. But I think, you know, the key point there is um, there's a lot of other factors today that can, even if they cut production, as we saw in November. By the way, I want to make this point about the about that November production cut. Very first time in the history of OPEC, they preempted a demand loss. They've never could do that before because so much cheating would happen because of the higher supply elasticities. I want to broaden out the uh, conversation a little bit to maybe some of the other commodities. And again, uh, just starting out with throwing out something that I again heard from from Peter Sion very recently, something that I don't know uh, the details of. Uh, he was voicing in a particular concern about things like aluminum and titanium uh, because of Russia and because of the massive amount of production to a point where he said that he sees this becoming a massive problem for companies like Airbus, that they're essentially running out of the material to build the planes that, you know, they're trying to sell. You know, what what are your thoughts on kind of the metal space? But I know that metals is not just one thing. It's really kind of a diverse field, um, maybe more so than the energy complex. What, what are your thoughts on this? I, I, I agree with them that, that aluminum is going to be one of the most bullish commodities over the next five to 10 years. But I view it more, not so much from Russia, but even China itself. Because what when I like to call it the climate paradox. Aluminum creates the greatest amount of emissions to produce, but it's critical in solving climate change. Um, for all the obvious reasons, because it's one of the top six green metals. And when we think about the curtailment in supply, you know, whether if it's even in Europe more recently with the energy crisis, you think about China. In fact, here's why I'm also bullish about a rebound in China near term. They just put um, export tariffs on aluminum. It means they don't want the smelters operating anymore to export aluminum which means they want to keep the energy domestic as you see a domestic rebound in activity. But what that means is, you know, China produces a lot of coal to produce aluminum. Um, th those activities are not going to be it. In fact, if anything, you know, I agree with Peter completely on, on the, the overall outlook on, on, on Ali. Um, and by the way, I, I, I don't know if out of all the different um, activities, the aircraft pay the most for the alley. So they would be, you got really cut up into that demand curve before you hit the aircraft guys. Um, but it's going to be a big hit to their bottom line because the upside here could be, you know, massive. And by the way, I'll come to titanium, which I agree with him on. Those smaller commodities are the, the ones where I think are the bigger issue. But I think when you look at Russia, it's a low-cost producer, and they can produce green metal. So a lot of them would, would be focused on that. And by the way, on this whole point about boycotting Russian oil, Russian gas, Russian everything. Let me remind you that the Americans, um, uh, you know, in 1990 said they would never buy Saddam Hussein's oil ever again. 
And five, six years later, with the oil for food deal, they were back in buying U.S. or, you know, Iraqi oil again. So, yeah, there may be a lot of talk. They're done with all these Russian commodities. But the reality is and we can talk about Russian gas, which I have strong views there. Um, they're likely to be back, you know, sometime in the, you know, I'm not going to say near future, but sometime out there. But I think that the key point on Ali is it is it's got that climate paradox. You're going to have a huge increase in demand globally from green capex um, to create you know, low carbon energy sources because it can conduct electricity and it's super light. You can create products that don't consume as much energy. And then on the supply side, the coal production of, of Ali is likely going to be suppressed, um, which then Russia, by the way, has a lot of hydro and really clean burning production that people would like. Um, so I'm not going to discount you know, that, that Russian supply longer term. But I agree with them 100% on the titanium. Um, the titanium is also, they got huge market shares on these smaller, rare earth type metals. Um, and their impact on global growth, if they really wanted to do something and create problems for the West, it's those small, tiny markets that they have huge market share in that they could actually do something. And I put, you know, platinum, palladium, titanium, and right now, a lot of that's going out through through China. But I, so I agree with him 100% on the titanium. Um, I I agree with a longer term outlook on Ali. Um, I you know I I just don't agree with you know the Russian supply because the Chinese supply is the one I'm watching near term. You mentioned Russian gas, and I think it's appropriate to talk about gas in in this uh, in this conversation as as well. So again, I'd love to hear kind of you freestyling a little bit in terms of your thoughts on on where we are. It's obviously you know me also being situated here in Europe big topic uh, in in many countries. Luckily, at the moment, we're seeing a little bit of a mild spell across across the continent. But I think the problems that we, uh, or my understanding is that the problems we may have expected for this winter might actually become even bigger for the next winter. And maybe you can also educate me on on, on why that might be, if you share that view. Okay. Well, I mean, let's just kind of, let's, you know, let's do some broad numbers to give you an idea of the, the, the impact here. Um, you know, you look at you, you, Europe as a whole, it consumes roughly 45 BCF per day of, of gas. Russia pre-crisis represented 15 of that 45. So call it one third. It was a big supplier. Now, you didn't lose all of that Russian gas. You lost somewhere around 10 of it. Because remember, there's some going to Italy, some going through Turkey, coming up. So it's getting there. You replaced of that 10, um, you know, essentially four of it from LNG and one of it from coal to coal switching. So you got five back. So you're still short five. And right now they can bid away what would normally be going to China to solve this problem, to build the inventories up, plus a warm weather, you get you could deal with that, that mismatch. Now the problem becomes um, what happens, China comes back and you get a cold winter together at the same time in late 2023 and going into 2024, the problems begin to arise again. So why I, why I you know, couch my excitement about a rebound in Europe as being more near term than medium or longer term, um, because the problems haven't gone away. Um, and this is a global problem. And I think, you know, as China begins to rebound, it'll become more apparent. These issues. When I say global problem, it's a problem for everywhere but east of Rockies, the U.S., you know, that where that shale basin exists. California's got it. So it's a global problem, X 
U.S. East Iraqis. Um, so it definitely hasn't gone away. Um, but I think, you know, longer term, when you think about the viability of Germany, Inc., it needs that Russian pipe gas. You cannot operate a manufacturing sector off of LNG. I always like to say, ship the BMWs, don't ship the gas. You know, think about it. You need these multi-billion dollars liquefaction plants to turn the gas to liquefy it, put it in a $300 million floating thermos that is being frozen, ship it halfway around the world to a regas terminal. Isn't it easier to move the BMW plant to the U.S. on the gas field, put the BMW on a normal ship and ship the BMW? So I, I, I'm not a believer. In fact, LNG was invented for the, the London fog problem in the 1950s. It's an emergency fuel. It's not something you run an economy off. And I know, you know some of the CEOs of big industrial companies in Germany agree with me on, on this view, um, which means either you're gonna move those activities or you're gonna resolve the problems with, with Russia. Because ultimately a lot of that activity was created around that access to low, you know, you know, cheap gas coming in, in, in to, into Europe. By the way, on that point, I learned something kind of funny, the other not funny, but interesting. Why is all the petrochemical capacity sitting in Dusseldorf and places like that? The Soviets didn't want it on their own turf because they used to look at the Americans with all that petrochemical capacity sitting down in the Gulf Coast going, oh, that's an easy military target. So, you know, Germany's got a lot of this stuff and um, it, you can't operate it off of LNG. What do you see as kind of the timeline for kind of a convergence, if at all, in gas prices, if, if the main way that's going to happen is through onshoring of manufacturing? Um, a, do you see that happening? Do you have a thought on, on how to play that or uh, anything along those lines? I mean, you saw some of it. It's just basically you would shut down the aluminum smelters in Europe and turn on the coal ones in China, which is what China's telling you they're going to turn off in coming weeks. Um, you see it with fertilizer moving from Europe to the U.S. Those are the easy, low-hanging fruit. And by the way, a lot of that, because America went through the same crisis in 2000, 2001. And, um, and when it went through it, basically all those activities moved to Europe because of cheap gas. Um, and now they're moving back and going elsewhere in the world. Uh, but that's not a long-term solution, as you point out. Now, to get that convergence, with the U.S., um, I, we saw it happen this last year through coal. You know, they basically exported coal out of the U.S. into into Europe. You get it through petrochemicals and in these other act, other activities, uh, but it never fully converged. And I think one of the key reasons it goes the fact that you can get the supply. Um, in the Haynesville, you have the Marcellus and, you know, other sources of supply in the U.S. that um, prevent the U.S. from fully converging to the rest of the world. You know, our view is the U.S. is going to be oversupplied um, and it's going to be, you know, difficult for the U.S. to capture it. But it has to come through those indirect channels like coal, petrochemicals, industrial activities, fertilizers and things like that. But in the very near term, because of the warm weather, because of the LNG exports, because of the weakness in China, um, Europe doesn't need to converge. And I, you know, I think that that's being reflected in the big pullback in prices we see more recently. Actually, if anything, Europe is converging to the U.S. You know, one, one commodity we haven't talked about is, is uh, you know, agriculture, 
uh, grains, et cetera. Um, there was a lot of talk uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine about there being, you know, um, famine and, uh, you know, obviously uh, the, the problem with uh, agricultural commodities, it also tends to create geopolitical problems, right? Stresses across uh, countries. Just look at uh, the Arab Spring, right? Um, so we'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, your current kind of thoughts. And if you've, you're seeing any new like high frequency data on, on ags uh, and anything kind of more, more timely. Well, you know, with the El Nino effect in Argentina, you know, prices are back to those Russia highs that we saw back in June. You know, you look at soybeans, they're back to $16 a bushel. You know, corn's what? $6.77 a bushel. So we, we've gotten back up to really high prices on agriculture. Again, a lot of that's weather driven. However, when we think about the, you know, the longer term story, I think these are still the tightest markets. Um, and I don't think, you know, I'm not going to go as far as call it famine. The system always finds a way to adjust, as we saw here in Europe with natural gas, and as you will likely see in, in, in agriculture going forward. But it doesn't mean it's not going to be painful. And when we think about the factors driving it, we call it the three Cs. Um, it is climate, conflict, and carbon. Those are the three Cs. Starting with climate, um, yields are changing. Um, it was as you, you know, as you see places like you know the breadbasket in the U.S. or you know Mato Grosso in, in Brazil, the yields in these places are becoming um, constrained by weather. We've seen substantial weather shocks. I even think about what's happening with agriculture in the U.S. It's kind of like the manufacturing problem in Detroit and the Midwest in the '80s. It had to move. People don't want it to move, but it had to move. And I think here with agriculture, you're going to have to go to to more northern climates or places with 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 better yields, and that's going to take time and create restrictions around around supply. But I think you know, so that's climate is C number one. C number two is conflict, like we saw with with Ukraine, but in places like Africa and other other parts of the world, it, it, it's it's a relatively serious issue. But let's go to carbon, and I don't think enough is. And this goes back to the very first question you asked is, what's different about this cycle? It's the inability to invest in, in carbon-related um, assets. And I like to point out, when we finish the year, what are the things that are up? It's all things that are carbon. And what is food? Food is a carbo carbohydrate. It's the carbon-hydrogen bond. And I like to point out, what makes planet Earth planet Earth? It's the carbon-hydrogen bond. It's organic chemistry. It doesn't exist elsewhere. And when we think about food, food is a carbohydrate, oil is a hydrocarbon. What is the difference between a carbohydrate and a hydrocarbon? It's an oxygen. That's the only thing that separates the two. And then how do you get a carbohydrate to turn into an oxygen, get that, or a hydrocarbon? Think about wood. Wood's a carbohydrate. It sits on the surface. Eventually, after thousands of years, it rots and it becomes oil and the oxygen is gone and it becomes a hydrocarbon. That's about it between the two, but there's still that carbon-hydrogen bond. And so when we think about the underinvestment in carbon, it's hitting pretty much, you know, it's hitting the agriculture sector, it's hitting the oil sector, it's hitting the metals and mining sector, it's hitting all of these sectors. So you get that same underinvestment dynamic, um, you know, hitting it. So again, the three Cs, climate, conflict, and carbon, you know, are creating a structural bull market in agriculture. Just staying on the climate, I know we only have a few minutes uh, left with you, Jeff, but just staying on, on the climate thing, we, we actually had a, we did a conversation just a few weeks ago uh, with a, um, a weather a cycle uh, analyst, very f fascinating. And I've also heard, I think, uh, one of our other 
guests, uh, Simon Hunt, both on our podcast, but also on, on uh, Grant uh, Williams' podcast, talk about that NASA and I think there was one other um, large institution essentially tying uh, global warming to uh, sunspots and that the sunspot cycle was about to turn in, in the next two or three years, so to speak. I mean, is this kind of stuff things you 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 also look at that you um, have opinions about whether because I know you have I think some strong opinions about ESG because obviously it has had a huge impact on on lots of things and by the way before I forget I do want you to tell everyone shortly how little impact all the windmills in Germany uh, has had so far and all the money we've we've put at it not that I don't think any of us disagree with the aim of what we're trying to do in terms of creating a better world, but but just some of the ways we do it. But just going back to these things in terms of what you might think may be going on in terms of global warming that people are not actually wanting to, to talk about? Bottom line, I mean, the uncertainty bands uh, around climate change are so large you can drive a truck through them. Um, and so do we know a certainty what's causing it is uh, do carbon emissions the co- I go back to the basic concept is you take Venus it's got a lot of co- you know co2 in it and it's really hot you know the stuff you know that's my basic bonehead of thought process through this but statistically I mean I have to agree with you that you know we don't know and we don't know maybe it's good maybe it's bad we don't know but here's the way I, I like to think about it the risk of it, what if it's really bad? Why take the risk? Uh, yeah, it's expensive. But I, but I, here's my problem is we're not addressing that problem and the risk around it in a rational manner. And that's my dislike for, for, for ESG is, is, you know, let's solve this problem, but let's do it in a rational manner that actually gets results. And if you were really wanting to get results and get rid of of carbon, we got so many technologies available at our disposal to get rid of it. Nuclear sits high on that list, and we think about you know renewables. You know we've put was it something three point eight trillion dollars over the last decade, which moved height before the Russian event moved hydrocarbon consumption from eighty two percent of our primary energy source to eighty one. So did very little. And by the way, there is investments in synergies of building out the, the logistics, so I don't want to I- ignore that. But I think, you know, in terms of of trying to solve this problem, I'm not sure renewables is the right answer to deal with this. And um, here's a couple points I'd just like to leave the listeners to, to think about, is when we think about energy and energy waste, the damage we're doing to the world to create energy, it's directly proportional to the density of the energy. Let's take about wood. We started with wood. It has a lot of waste. It has ashes, carbon. By the way, it emits a lot more CO2 than coal does. Then you go down to coal. It has less emissions, less waste associated. Then we went to oil, had less. Then gas, less. Then nuclear. Think about nuclear. A whole power plant. All of the waste sits in something the size of your fist. No carbon emissions whatsoever. And by the way, if we just cared about getting carbon emissions down, we replace all the coal with gas immediately. And then we would, you know, use nukes and really take it down. Now, why do I bring up that, that progression of density and why is it important to the discussion? Think about renewables. We're going backwards in time, worse than wood. Think about how big 
those wind farms are, how big those solar farms are, how much destruction we're doing to the environment. There may be no carbon emissions, but the amount of destruction associated with them are substantial. So you're going the opposite direction. You're creating lower energy density, which means you have more waste associated with it. Now, I'm going to throw out some stats. You know, 165 people die each year of the ice coming off of the wind turbines. I'm not going to get into the debate about how many non, about Fukushima, about how many die, but I can tell you it's probably much less than 165 um, per, per year. And I don't, and by the way, coal, it's like 6 million people die because of coal. And we're burning more coal this year, 525,000 tons more coal this year, and it kills a lot of people. And we're, emissions are going to be up somewhere in the tune of, you know, I think we have them up 4.3% because of all the coal being burned. So um, I think you get my point on here. I think, you know, to answer your question, I don't know about it. I think the risks are so high that it's something really bad that we need to do something about it. And why not when you have, you know, replace the coal with gas? It's just cleaner burning. It doesn't, you know, more lives will be saved. Replace, you know, use the nukes. We know they work. Um, so in any way, I know I'm going into some politically dangerous topics here. No, no, um, it's fine. It's fine. I and actually, I'm, I'm, I'm. I also want to add to your list, which I thought was a, a an excellent list, is the fact that nobody talks about the amount of energy that goes into producing the windmills and and all the other stuff, which is just a mind bar and uh, resources, by the way. Jim, you get the last uh, question, quick just, one. Yeah, just to put a bow on this. Okay, you've convinced us, right? We're in a commodity super cycle. Um, the name of the show is Top Traders Unplugged. If you're looking a decade forward, what is the most asymmetric way to profit um, on the commodity super cycle? Is it something as far afield as, hey, we need more carbon supply Venezuela, like find a way to just uh, look there. The U.S. is obviously going to have to turn and find, you know, uh, commodities. Is it nuclear? Is it, uh, and then, what are the ways to, uh, what's the trade? The bottom line is you need to have trillions of dollars of CapEx in this space. The equities are going to be the conduit. And so owning the equities, um, you want to own some of the commodities as inflation hedges. So you know, you know, a basket of the commodities, um, you capture that upside. And uranium would be an excellent example of something you'd want to own in this environment. You want to own the metals and miners because they're going to enable the green revolution through production of everything from the, the big green capex metals, which are copper, alley, silver, nickel, lithium, and cobalt. Those are the big six. Um, and then you have the rare earth metals. And so you need that investment. So those are going to be the, the, the places and the, the opportunities. But if you put a gun to my head and ask me, which one of all these commodities do I want to own? Oil is the biggest one of the bunch. It's the most strategically important. Um, it's the one that drives the, drives the macro variables. And you, you, know, you cannot stop investing in something that's strategically and critically so important. Um, and, you know, that it's going to, because, and here's the th question, I don't, again, I don't want to get into the politics of, you know, whether it's right or wrong investing in it or what. The bottom line is people are not stopping consuming it. And the only way you're going to get people to stop consuming it, you got to tax them. goes back to my very initial point. You need a carbon price or a carbon tax. But if they're quitting, they're, if they're not stopping consuming it, and you're not investing in it, and that gap gets bigger and bigger, and it's super inelastic. Um, that's the one that could, you know, create a lot of volatility going forward. 
Great way to uh, end our conversation. Jeff, this has been a tremendous conversation, as I knew it would be. Thank you so much for doing this today. Before we go, let me just say that you need to make sure and follow all the work that Jeff does, because as you can tell from today's conversation, we're living in a true global macro and commodity-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jem and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.